Ike and Tina Turner become huge stars in the music world. But after years of domestic abuse, Tina breaks out on her own. Coming up next on Out of Touchdown. You're starting to get next to me. Honey, that was my plan from the very beginning. Darling, uh-huh. I never thought that this could be. What do you mean? Oh, yeah. Your lips set my soul on fire. And you fulfill my one desire. Oh, darling. Yes, yes. I think it's going to work out. One of the many songs featured in the movie we're going to talk about. Well, there's a movie about music, so it only it only seems fitting. That was Tina Turner and Ike, and I put Ike in question mark, and we'll get into that when we discuss the music from this film. But that's a song called It's Gonna Work Out Fine. Welcome now to Touchdown. My name is Mike DeKalb. On the other end of the Skype line is my co-host, Chad Smart. Chad, are you ready to dig into the tumultuous relationship of Ike and Tina Turner? Um, do we have to? <laughs> I, I don't know. I I think this is going to be an interesting discussion. And, uh, you know, I think this is one of those films that had I seen it 30 years ago when it came out, my opinion may be a little bit different. But, uh, you know, it's like going back and watching the the original Lethal Weapon now and being like, oh, it's just standard buddy cop film. Like, you know, you got to put it into the context of when it came out. So we'll, I'll, I'll elaborate more when we start talking about the film. And what film is it? Well, Touchstone Pictures released it on June 9th of 1993, and it's called What's Love Got to Do With It? She wanted love. I'm trying to help. He wanted control. You trying to help, Mike? She had taken them to the top. He pushed her to the edge. Take your hands off of me. That's when she found the courage to fight back. You're going to walk out of here with nothing. Except my name. Touchstone Pictures presents a story of courage and triumph. The true life story of Tina Turner. What's love got to do with it? Rated R. Starts Friday, June 11th in select cities. Check newspaper for showtimes. Yes, the film was based on Tina Turner's memoir, I, Tina, which was written in 1986, co-written with Kurt Loder, which is kind of funny. When you look at our generation, Chad, mm-hmm. Kurt Loder was just the MTV News guy, right? It's funny to think, it's funny to see his name pop up in a Touchstone film all these years later. Yeah, when I saw that, I was like, that, that Kurt Loder? Like, and I know he's a, I think he worked for Rolling Stone you know, yeah. while he was working for MTV, but yeah, I did not realize that he had written uh, or co-written a, a rock biography. Yeah. Uh, in 1988, Disney optioned the book and hired Howard Ashman to write the script. Of course, everyone knows Howard Ashman from all of them, the animated films that he'd worked on. Apparently, he was a big Tina Turner fan. Unfortunately, when he passed away, he had a couple of drafts of the script written, but they, they I guess they wanted to find another writer, and they circled back to Kurt Loder and asked him to write it, but he turned them down. I read a quote where he said, he said Disney wanted like an upbeat film, and he was like, I didn't know a way to make this upbeat. Um, and so the, fi- the final screenplay, the final writer that they had uh, was a woman named Kate Lanier, and this was her film debut. I read something that it was like 
17 different drafts of the script she went through or something like that. But, uh, yeah, we talk about this a lot on the show, but that's Disney. That's Touchstone or Hollywood Pictures taking chances on, um, you know, up-and-coming writers. And that's not a lot of credits to her name. Um, there were several different directors attached to the film. I saw Taylor Hackford was one. He had just done Blood In, Blood Out for Hollywood Pictures. I did see Mario Van Peebles at one point was attached to the movie. He had come in off of New Jack City. And he also, there was talk that he was going to star as Ike, Ike Turner and also direct the film. But uh, that didn't happen because I believe he went to go do the Western Posse mm-hmm. instead. And so Disney circled back and got director Brian Gibson. Uh, he is a British filmmaker. He had directed documentaries for the BBC in the 1970s. And then I love this when I saw this on his resume. He worked with Styx in the early 1980s. He did all of the music videos from their Kilroy Was Here album, which is like this great concept album. And that includes Mr. Roboto. So that was Brian Gibson that did those. Um, his previous film credits, uh, he did the, the 1986 horror film Poltergeist 2, The Other Side. Uh, and his most recent film before this was the HBO TV movie, The Josephine Baker Story, which starred Lynn Whitfield, who he was married to at the time. I, I did not know that. Do you remember The Josephine Baker Story? I never did see that, but I know it was widely, widely reviewed. Yeah, I've never, never watched it, but I do remember it being a big deal when it came out on HBO. And... I believe I saw Poltergeist 2 in the theater, so... Did you? Uh, don't ask me anything about it, other than I think uh, the tagline was, They're back, maybe. They're back, okay. It should have been. They somehow, went, yeah. they somehow went to the other side, whatever that is. Yeah, yes. met up with Aerosmith. Uh, <laughs> there you go. As you can imagine, there were many, many actresses that were considered to play the role of Tina Turner. Kind of a mix of singers and also young actresses. You had people like Halle Berry... Robin Givens, Whitney Houston, Vanessa Williams, even Janet Jackson. What I thought was interesting is all of those women I just mentioned, they were all born between the years 1963 and 1966, which meant that when the time the film was being produced and released, they would have all been you know, between the ages of like 27 and 30. Um, one of the other actresses that was considered, which I thought was a surprise, was Pam Greer, who was 15 years older than all of those other women. Um, but the, the, the part does end up going to Angela Bassett, who was a little bit older. I, I read that she was about 34 at the time of the filming, so a little bit older than what they were going for with this other actresses. Uh, she had a lot of TV work in the 1980s, including lots of soap operas as well. Uh, but her film career really takes off in the 1990s. You know, she starts gets, gets a bit part in Kindergarten Cop and then expands to bigger roles in films like Boys in the Hood, Passion Fish, Innocent Blood, the John Landis vampire movie, which I've never seen that one. I've always been kind of curious to see that one. Uh, she's also been, she played Betty Shabazz in Malcolm X. And, you know, I always joke about whenever we get a chance to meet actors, it's always funny to ask them about some obscure movie they were in. I would love to ask Angela Bassett about her experience working on Critters 4. Yeah, I didn't make it that far in the series. You know, I figured two peaked with Leonardo DiCaprio, and I, I just oh, never really? went back. Yeah. I, I wonder if she was a fan two, of maybe three. I wonder if Angela Bassett was a big fan of the first three and just <laughs> I was like, get me in Critters yeah, 4. Uh, her most recent role before What's Love Got to Do With It was in the really popular ABC TV miniseries, The Jacksons and American Dream. She played the mother. She played Katherine Jackson in that, that movie. I don't know about you. That seemed like that movie was on. It was on, I remember it being on ABC. I watched it when it aired. Mm-hmm. And then I swear it's on VH1 <laughs> every weekend. For a while there, it was. I swear yeah. it was on every single weekend. Yeah. Starring opposite Angela Bassett in the role of Ike Turner is Lawrence Fishburne. 
I did see that he was offered the part of Ike Turner five separate times and turned them down each time. I, I think I read an interview where he said they just he, I know he's the villain of the piece, but he just did not have any depth whatsoever and he didn't feel comfortable playing him. He said he only accepted the part after Angela Bassett was cast. You know, they had worked together in, in Boys in the Hood. And I did see that Lawrence Fishburne also asked and was given approval to rewrite some of the script, some of the dialogue to give Ike some depth. Yeah. Uh, he had a very lengthy career with a notable early role in the Francis Ford Coppola epic Apocalypse Now. He was only 17 years old when he was in that movie. And I read it took him two years to film it. If you know anything about the history of Apocalypse Now, it's one of the craziest productions. But yeah teenage Larry Fishburne in that movie. He's pretty memorable. Uh, in the 1980s, Francis Ford Coppola brings him back three separate times, Rumblefish, The Cotton Club, and Gardens of Stone. Uh, he was also in The Color Purple. Do you remember Band of the Hand, Chad? I know I watched that one night on Sony Movie Channel. Were you at the house with me when we watched yeah, that? Yeah, we had like a little movie night and watched that because that was a movie I remember watching on video back in the uh, late 80s. And... Uh, Sadly, I don't think it really held up as well as I remembered it. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to sit here and try to remember plot points of the movie, and I really can't. So that's that's how well it held up, I guess. Well, there was a band of guys, and they were held together by a hand. Something like Something that. Something Yeah, and lines. I know, uh, I can't even think of her name, the actress from Dumb and Dumber, who um, was also on Pick Offenses. I don't know. Well, my oh, mother- Lauren Holly. Lauren Holly is in the movie, yes. And, th- and they're all like uh, kids that are like um, troubled youths, and they get put together and something like that. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's that's for our uh, Patreon episode. We'll review Band of the Hand. Yeah, yeah, because like, we, can, we can mention the fact that John Cameron Mitchell from Hedwig and the Angry <laughs> Inch is in that. And also, the lead of Band in the Hand is going to turn up in the Hollywood picture we're going to discuss later, yeah. which is Stephen Lang. So it's interesting to see him, av- if you know him from Avatar, to mm-hmm. see him in band of the hand what else was larry fishburne in he was in nightmare on elm street three dream warriors he was in school days he's got an awesome role in king of new york opposite christopher walken but who how can we forget he for i think it was four seasons he played cowboy curtis on peewee's playhouse i always forget Mm -hmm. about that it's it's interesting to look back and see um and then before what's love got to do with it he had two really really awesome roles as i mentioned he was in boys in the hood and he's also in deep cover which Kind of known for the Dr. Dre Snoop Dogg theme song, but also really good movie. I think you said you watched that one recently, didn't you? Uh, probably. It sounds familiar, yes. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum, I remember being in that, yeah. Uh, well, well, what's interesting with a movie like What's Love Got to Do With It, and we'll get into it when we go into our questions, the supporting cast is kind of spread out. Not They don't really have a lot of major scenes, but there was two different uh, actors that I want to call out uh, that, that I, were very notable to me. Uh, the first is Jennifer Lewis who comes back to Touchstone. She had done, she was in Beaches. She was also in Sister Act. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, she's on Blackish with Lawrence Fishburne right now. Uh, I will take your uh, word and, for it. Yeah, yeah. And then the other supporting cast member I wanted to bring up was the great Shy McBride, who had just done The Distinguished Gentleman for Hollywood Pictures at the time that this movie had come out. And I believe uh, in this movie, he had not gotten married yet, so he was just shy. In the credits. He didn't have a bride, I, I, or a McBride. We can bring the crickets are coming back. I think it's 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 been a while. It's been a while. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, well, we'll we'll get into the movie as we like to do. We we we'll form our discussion as a series of questions 
rather, you know, to kind of get to our reviews. I like to look at the scripts and the production, also the performances. We'll leave with the performances because honestly, Chad, that's what this movie was to me. This was this was acting. This was just mm-hmm. <laughs> just acting. The two leads are absolutely amazing in this film. And the first question that I have is my feeling when I got out of the movie was that I know this is supposed to be about Tina, but this movie is really about Ike. Like Ike dominates the screen. Did you think that Ike was too good in this movie? Was Lawrence Fishburne too good and did his role sort of overshadow Tina? My thought when watching the film was if I didn't know it was Larry Fishburne or Lawrence Fishburne in the role, I wouldn't have picked it out as being Lawrence Fishburne because I thought he embellished the, not embellished, but um, uh, just became I don't know about the real Ike Turner, but in this movie, he was Ike Turner just as a person and completely lost any semblance of Lawrence Fishburne that I was familiar with. So, uh, yeah, hands down, spoiler for when we get to the Ronnies, unless something major comes <laughs> up, Lawrence Fishburne is probably going to win Best Actor of of 1993's Touchstone Slate because he his performance is that good in this role and yeah it's interesting you know I I didn't think about it that way but uh, the way you mentioned it being you know kind of overshadowing Tina which I guess ironically is fitting for the the subject matter uh, of the film but yeah he he's just like you said this is uh, uh, if you want to know acting just put on his performance and, and watch it and it's effortless. Yeah, no, like you said, it's, it's eerily similar how Ike was a domineering force over Tina in real life. And Lawrence Fishburne just, just dominates Angela Bassett in this movie. I mean, Angela's fine. Don't get me wrong. But it's like, Ike is just, he's magnetic from the very moment we first meet him. They're, they're in a coffee shop and he's just, he's just laying it on thick and he's just such a smooth talker and it just draws you right in. And a man, Girl, you shocked the hell out of me. Where a little woman like you get such a big voice? <laughs> you had them folks talk down in there like... Let me put it to you this way. See, it's like you sang like a man. I mean, you are a woman. You are a woman. Any man can see that, but... Girl, it's like you got your own particular way of getting a song at you. It's unique. You got your own unique sound. See, that's what sells records. Whew. You got a flat. Oh, yeah, you <laughs> definitely got a flat. now. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a, a, a flair? A flair. Well, yes, I do. Matter of fact, I got a flair for writing songs, and uh, I also have a flair for making singers famous. What do you mean? The people that's come up with me, folks that sang in my review, a lot of them went on to be big time after they with me. They, you know, they take off, but that's all right, though. That's all right. That's all fixing the change. I got a new singer in mind. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. He good? Yes, indeed. She is real good. Matter of fact, she's very good. (laughs) Yeah, the one main takeaway that I had from this movie, I think uh, our friend Pam uh, had come out to hang out with my wife and I after the the, the night that I'd watched the movie. And she was asking me how it was. And I said, this is my, my, my tagline from this movie or whatever, is that Ike is acting and Tina is reacting. Like Ike drives the drives the film, you know, and then all of Angela Bassett's scenes are just reacting to Ike. Like I, I wonder, without looking at the scripts and counting the lines, I, I got a feeling Ike's got three times as many lines of dialogue as, as Tina does in this movie. 
And one of the things that I real, that really struck me, you know, again, I said I, Angela Bassett was 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 very good in this movie as well. Um, and she really shines during the musical scenes. But and I know this if I was watching it because I did not know this ahead of time. She's clearly lip syncing like it's it's mm. it's Tina's voice. And I wonder, do you think, Chad, would it have been more effective to let Angela sing on her own? Well, I think that probably, I mean, it probably would have helped if she, um, you know, I have not heard Angela Bassett sing, so I don't know what she's, you know, how her uh, singing capabilities are. But I did read that she was cast very late into pre-production. And so they said they she didn't have time to to really work on the vocal uh, techniques to be Tina. And that's why they ended up using uh, Tina's uh, actual audio and having her lip sync. But, uh, you know, I didn't really, it didn't take me out of the film that she was lip syncing. I kind of um, expected it. And again, you know, we'll, when we get into our reviews, we'll, we'll touch a little bit more on this, but um, yeah, I, I, I would be curious to hear what Angela Bassett would have sounded like if she could have done it, but I, you know, maybe she uh, focusing on the dancing and getting the dancing right was good enough. Yeah, that's what I read. You talked about how they she was too late in, too late in the pre-production process to do all the singing, but I heard that she was she was lifting weights and she got really muscular oh. and she was doing all the dance numbers and stuff and that was more important, yeah. Oh yeah, my one note for this film is Angela Bassett is ripped. Oh god. She's just <laughs> she's she is cut up. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know. put throw her in the next alien movie because she could take down the queen mother, yeah. Well, what I thought was interesting is that is that some of the other people that were considered for the role were all were singers, like we mm-hmm. said, like Whitney Houston. I think I heard Whitney Houston was actually going to have the part, and then she backed out because she got pregnant. Mm. Um, and then, but then it's like, could you imagine if, if Whitney's playing it? Whitney probably would have done her own singing. And then it's like, but that's Whitney singing. Yeah. You know, te- say what you will about, like I said, I don't mind the lip syncing. It was just is that because te- Tina's voice is so unmistakable mm-hmm. in this film, and it feels like future biopics have kind of gotten away from that. They make it seem like. Oh, this actress or this actor is so good. Yeah. They're gonna, they're gonna, you're gonna hear their own singing. And I'll go back to what I was talking about at the beginning of the episode. I did read that, and some that maybe this is a record label situation. This happens a lot with a lot of bands that we grew up listening to, where they go back and re-record their albums so that they can get the master recordings. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, Tina Turner re-recorded a bunch of the Ike and Tina Turner songs for this film. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they were using. And so the song that I chose at the beginning of the episode was a song called It's Gonna Work Out Fine. And it's technically by Ike and Tina Turner. And there's lines in the song where Tina says, hey, Ike. And Ike goes, yes. But then in the original recording from the 60s, that's not Ike. It's one of his band members. And so the version from 1993, I read that it was actually Tina Turner and Lawrence Fishburne. Lawrence Fishburne sang the part. But then I saw another article that said, oh, no, it was it was one of. Her, Tina's uh, frequent musical collaborators that did the Ike parts mm. for the re-recordings of her old songs for this movie. Again, it's it's if you if you can picture, I, I got a big board up on the wall with all these lines <laughs> pointing to it to figure out who's singing these parts. Anyway, uh, the last question I want to ask you about the the acting is, again, I, I alluded to it a little bit ago. Was would it have helped to have more of the supporting cast because? I just I wish I could have met more of the band. You know, we don't we, we don't get to see them. You get to see you get to meet a couple of the background singers. You know, I wish we could have seen more of, of Tina's mother played by Jennifer Lewis. You know, I mentioned Shy McBride at the beginning of the film. The character that he plays is, is fictional. I read that later. Um, but it was a, it was a really interesting personification of like of like sort of like Ike's right hand man that, that takes him with them. And then I read online that 
one of the one of the many historical inaccuracies with the film is that Tina had her very first child with one of the members of Ike's band. And they don't even talk about that. They made it seem like Ike had his own kids and then Tina adopted them. Yeah. So I'm like, I would, would I mean, I know it's a piece about two really strong individual characters, mm-hmm. but would you like to have seen more supporting characters? Well, there is the one backing singer that uh, Tina goes to late in the film, like when she's getting away from Ike. And mm-hmm. I think, yeah, maybe if you, maybe if you did stress how the relationship with the band members, you know, throughout the years, because we've kind of not really brought it up so far in discussion, but this movie is really just a a warning sign of domestic abuse. And, you know, we Mm -hmm. see like when they're at their home in California, the way Ike treats Tina and there's a lot of people in the house when he's berating her and, and everything. And I, you know, I would be curious to hear what their reactions were or why, you know, were they just like, oh, girl, just, just deal with it. Uh, you know, Ike's the one getting us all the money and the, and the tours and, and writing the songs. Just stick with him. It's okay. Or were they like, you got to get out of here. You know, why are you staying with him? Um, so I think that would have yeah. been an interesting aspect. But at the same time, this, as, this is a movie about Ike and Tina. And so maybe keeping the focus on them keeps it, uh, you know, more... Um, more sequestered in for us as the audience to see kind of an outlier uh, of, of the relationship. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what that kind of goes into the next set of questions I was going to ask, which has to do with the script and the production as well. And, and that was, you know, the abuse scenes. I mean, I guess, you know, it's about music, but it's also about abuse. That's what this, mm-hmm. this movie is. And my, my question for you is were the abuse scenes effective? Because I thought they were, they were incredibly hard to watch mm-hmm. for sure. You know, but they definitely drive the drama. My only thing was it, it felt like as a viewer, you're just basically waiting for Ike's next blow up, mm-hmm. which kind of gives it a, a lifetime movie feel. But I think really effective, though, right? Yeah. I, yeah. The relationship. And I, again, if I'd watched this 30 years ago, difference of, of uh, where I felt like right now. I just felt like I knew I, I kind of know the Tina Turner story without all the details. Like I know the cliff notes version. And so this was just like, okay, I'm just watching another abusive situation and then another abusive situation. I think I, to me, I, I, I wanted a little bit more out of the film and I, you know, I don't know what more there could have been because I don't know what the actual true story is. And so maybe this was just, you know, the daily occurrence for, for Tina. But I, I think the abuse was there. And like I said, Larry Fishburne is just incredible in the role. And so he, you know, as, as a viewer, like you are, like you said, you're waiting for the next little spark to, to incite him because it doesn't feel like an actor waiting to pounce. It feels like if Tina Turner does something, Ike's going to just be, it's a, it's a natural reaction. It's again, like you said, it's not, it's acting, but it's not, it's not, uh, I guess in the John Lovett's frame of mind, it's not acting. Genius. <laughs> yeah. And I don't mean to poke, I, I'm not trying to poke fun at lifetime movies. I just, no. it just, that's sort of become a, a cliche. I did right. look it up. I don't know, Chad, do you know this? The very first lifetime movie came out in 1990. 
So it wasn't that far removed from that. But uh, the one thing I will say about those those abuse scenes is, you know, the whole time you're watching it, you're just like, why is she still there? Mm -hmm. And I think the filmmakers did a really good job of drawing that parallel between Tina not wanting to leave Ike because when she was a child, like her mother had left her, Mm -hmm. you know. And then that scene at the end, toward the end, I should say, I guess would be the end of the second act, maybe where Ike, where Tina finally does leave him. And she like runs across the street into this other hotel and tries Mm -hmm. to get a room. That's probably the most powerful scene in the whole movie. Yeah, you know, and it's just like you're just kind of waiting for that to come. It just takes a little bit longer than you'd hope. Yeah, and I did read, and you probably saw this too, that they prominently show the Ramada Inn hotel sign, and that's because Tina Turner credits Ramada Inn with saving her life, and that's like a very important thing to her. So I thought that was kind of neat that they really did focus on that. Well, yeah. And then so then the other question I want to ask you was, again, I, I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record because I've kind of alluded to it earlier was, you know, is this Ike's movie or is it Tina's movie? Because as we mentioned, like, I felt like the first 10 minutes of the film is like a really rushed backstory mm-hmm. of Tina. You know, you see her singing in a choir, you see her mother leave her, and then you see her rejoin her mother years later in St. Louis. Right. That's mm-hmm. that's really all you see. And then but she doesn't leave Ike until the last 20. She, she has 20 minutes after she leaves Ike. Till the movie's over, right? So you're like, great, we're going to see the establishment of her solo career. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? Ike shows up two more times mm-hmm. in those 20 minutes and has really long scenes with her, you know. And especially what 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 really kind of drove me crazy was that there's a final scene where she's getting ready for this big concert, and then uh, Ike shows up in the dressing room, and it's like, oh my god, it's like this really tense moment. But then. Well, my whole thought—I don't know about you, Chad—but when I was watching it, I was waiting for it to be in her head. Because I'm like, that would make more sense. Like, if it's just like she still can't kind of get out. And, like, and I think he even says something during that scene where he points to his, his head and he's like, I'm still up in here, you know. And I'm like, okay, it's just in her head. And then maybe she'll do a – apparently, as Tina Turner was a Buddhist, uh, she does a Buddhist chant and then Ike goes out and then she does her concert. Mm-hmm. No, apparently they made it sound like he was there. And then you look in real life and that thing never happened. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh, why even do that then? Just, yeah. just have it all be in her head, you know. But it's just like – I would have liked to have seen more of her away from Ike because it makes it sound like in the in the trailers on the cover of the DVD. I, I rented the DVD to watch it, mm-hmm. and it's just the true story of Tina Turner. And it's like it's it's if it's not, it's it's the true story of Ike as, or the true story of Tina as it relates to Ike. Yeah, that's a good point. I I was more, I guess, kind of shocked that the movie ends with, you know, the start of the Tina Turner career that I am familiar with. You know, which is when she came back in the eighties and had the what's love got to do with it uh, song, which is very popular. And, and so my thing is why call it, you know, why title the movie what's love got to do with it? Because it doesn't pertain to the era of the film of the story that you're telling. So I'm sure Tina, I can Tina have a song title that would have fit perfectly, but uh, you know, it's Hollywood. You want name recognition. And so you take the bigger hit, but yeah, I, yeah. Uh, this is a film that, Yes. Watching it, separating it, looking at it as a piece of, let's say, art versus reality, it's a fine film. But much like, say, The Perfect Storm or Argo, leave it at the film and then don't look at the real story to uh, compare the two. Um, because, you know, yeah, fiction is stri- stronger than truth sometimes. Well, yeah, obviously, I think I, you know, hated the movie or, or yeah. fought with it. And then Tina said she's never even watched the movie because mm-hmm. she said she lived it. But, yeah, that's a good mm-hmm. point. Like you said, it, I think they, they co-opted the biggest song of her solo career 
but to kind of talk about the to, uh, make a movie about her life. And like you said, they don't even really go into the solo career. And I'm more more than anything, I'm more miffed that we didn't see any of her before that. Like, mm-hmm. like because you're watching the movie, and again, she just gets to St. Louis. Okay, she's. I want to see some character development of her and her mom and her sister living together. And it's like the day that she shows up at the house, the sisters go into the club, and mom's like, "Hey, why don't you bring your sister?" And 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 then she goes there, and then Ike's at the club, and it's yeah. just like we don't get any moment of her before Ike comes in. And then the, the last little kicker, and this is the final question I wanted to ask you, was why do we really need to see the real Tina Turner at the end of the film? Because it's like the, the whole point at the very last scene in the film is, is Tina singing Angela Bassett singing What's Love Got to Do With It. And then it edits into the real Tina singing it for, to a big crowd while we get all the little the text on screen to tell you what happened to Ike and what's happened to Tina. But I just I thought it really made Angela Bassett just feel like a placeholder. You know, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't like that. Yeah, I don't think you need you needed the the real Tina Turner at the end. I, I can understand why it was there, but I'm with you. I think by doing so, it cheapens the performance of Angela Bassett. So I would have like just stick with no. the fictional Tina. <laughs> yeah, unless it's, it's almost like they don't want you to. It's almost like you, they don't want you to think of Angela Bassett when you think of Tina Turner. Mm-hmm. Which I think what's happens with a lot of biopics, right? That's why you're always worried about you're always worried about huge stars playing huge people. Like when Will Smith played Muhammad Ali, it was weird because I was like, "That's not Muhammad Ali; it's Will Smith." Right? You know, and I think yeah. that could happen with with certain biopics. I'm sure people that probably associate Jamie Foxx with Ray, mm-hmm. people who weren't old enough to know what Ray Charles looked like, might picture Jamie Foxx in their brain. But maybe it was just their way to be like, "Okay, we just watched Angela Bassett for two hours, but let's not forget this is what Tina Turner looks like. This is the real Tina Turner. It's slightly mm-hmm. different." You know, yeah. still as muscular, maybe not as muscular as Angela Bassett <laughs> was, but still pretty good. Still good. But uh, all right. Well, well, who's packing some muscle in the critics review, Chad? You got some uh, review for us? What did, the, what did the people of the era think of this movie? All right. I do have a few reviews. First up, our good friend Roger Ebert says, What's Love Got to Do With It has a lot of terrific music in it, but this is not the typical showbiz musical. It's a story of pain and courage, uncommonly uncommonly honest and unflinching and the next time i hear tina turner singing i will listen to the song in a whole new way three and a half stars wow okay new york times critic janet maslin said when a film subject is as familiar visually as miss turner is verisimilitude can be become can become limiting and unrewarding movie of the week style this film is wise to avoid the aspect of Miss Turner's life that would have been impossible to recreate for a video literate audience, like her early days on tour with the Rolling Stones, and keep the celebrity tie-ins to a minimum. Instead of dropping famous names, the film evokes the 60s and 70s through gleefully garish props, outfits, and hairstyles, most notably on the perpetually hip and fashion-minded Ike. Even at his most embittered and dangerous, Ike never forgets to try and look his best. All right. And then lastly, from Entertainment Weekly's Owen Gleiberman, the movie is far from perfect. It has the kind of clunky episodic script that has bedeviled just about every musical biopic in history. Yet it's driven by an electrifying soundtrack and by two performances of staggering power. A minus. Switching to my opinion and my review. Um, I, I do not know the $10 words like Ebert and Maslin and Gleiberman, but I will say Going back to my original comments early in the show, I think because we've had so many biopics in the last 10 years, 
you know, you mentioned Ray, there's been Walk the Line, Bohemian Rhapsody, um, Rocket Man. I found this movie didn't really add anything to the genre other than two really good lead performances. And Mm -hmm. so because of that, and because, um, like I said, it, it didn't give me anything new that I really didn't know about Tina Turner. So I, I felt like, okay, why am I watching the, you know, why am I watching a movie where I already know the bare basics and that's all you're going to give me. Um, so that took me on the film. Plus, um, I watched this on IMDb TV, which is a free streaming with, with commercials. And it just felt like every time it came back from commercial, I felt like I was missing something like, I'm like, like, is there a scene that it just felt very jarring. And so that probably also, you know, took me out of the film every 15 to 20 minutes. Um, but all that said, I'm, I'm going to give this movie a six because I do think you should watch it for the performances. But as a story, I, I really don't find there's much there that uh, is, is really that interesting unless you know next to nothing about Tina Turner. Yeah, or specifically Ike. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was right there with you, Chad. I gave it a six out of ten as well. Uh, I, you know, it's it's a decent film, but it is it's hard to watch. I mean, mm-hmm. I I think it's sort of a cautionary tale about the about domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think like I feel like there's been musical biopics, but they there's always drama involved. But this is one of the first times I can remember a musical biopic that was specifically involving domestic abuse, mm-hmm. and it's one of the most famous cases where you had these two at least this these two huge stars, especially Tina being a big star as well, and to know that what, that's what she was dealing with all that whole time. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and as you said. The, the reason to watch this movie, I'll give it a six and I'll tell people they should, they should see it. Just be prepared because the, 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 the violence is brutal. It's mm. not, they don't shy away from it, yeah. you know, and, th- and those scene, those violent scenes go on a little longer than they would have because I think they wanted to really drive that point home. But like you said, the most, the reason to watch this movie is the, is the acting, you know, again, mm. no slight to Angela Bassett, who is, who is very good in this movie. But Lawrence Fishburne is just absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So um, from a trivia standpoint, as we mentioned, uh, Jennifer Lewis, who plays uh, Tina's mother in the film, she actually auditioned to play Tina. Um, and she was cast as her mother instead, even though she's, o- she's only one year older than Angela Bassett was. <laughs> um, and what I thought was interesting is they, are, they actually filmed some scenes at Ike and Tina Turner's former home in Baldwin Hills. They had sold it to a person in the late 70s, I think in 1977, and that person had been living there and had kept some of the furniture as it was. And so the filmmakers went back and they filmed at that house. And while they were filming at that house, at that house, Ike Turner showed up. Um, and he supposedly he sat with Lawrence Fishburne. He signed some autographs and he showed uh, Larry Fishburne how to walk like like Ike does. You know, uh, I'd read that Disney had asked that director Brian Gibson not meet the real Ike. Because he did, they they didn't want them to, and he said that they only crossed paths on that one day. Yeah, so I don't know. Did you say you had other some other trivia things you wanted to bring up about this movie? No, I. It's not really trivia. It's just, and you kind of alluded to it earlier. Um, there's, I guess, an interview or when they were doing press for the film, Tina Turner and Angela Bassett were, you know, talking together. They were doing Q and A or questions with the media, and someone asked. Tina Turner, what she thought of the film and Tina said something along the lines of, I haven't seen it. I lived it. I don't need to watch it. And I guess if you see, if you find the video, Angela Bassett's face, just kind of, you know, she kind of like, <laughs> Oh, cause here she is being like, Oh, I want to what Tina thinks of my performance. And Tina's like, I don't even want to see your performance. So yeah, that's, that, that'd be a little, 
disappointing. I'm, I'm a little sure. jarring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I couldn't find a personal connection uh, in this movie. Again, there's, there's only so many members of the cast that, yeah. that were recognizable. Uh, so the last thing I always like to bring up is, is the legacy of the film. I mean, I know there's no, there's no reason to remake this or have a TV show based on it like that and carry on the franchise. But I will say, as we've talked about it a lot, I think this, this movie paved the way for a lot of musical biopics. Mm. And in my opinion, those ones that came after it have all been have all been better. A lot of them have mm. been better. Like they've they've really developed the characters a little bit more and have not just focused on the main dramatic aspect, like in this case was the domestic abuse. Like I, yeah. I, I didn't I necessarily care for Walk the Line. I thought Ray was decent. Whenever I was talking about because those two came out very 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 close to each mm. other, but I always mentioned that there was a third movie that came out around the same time that I thought was better than both, and hardly anybody saw it, and it was Beyond the Sea with Kevin Spacey playing Bobby Darren. And that was really good. I mean, yeah, and I I, I, I really like Bohemian Rhapsody too. Like it, hmm. it helps if you if you like the band that's being discussed in the film, you hmm. know. And I hope there's been there's been talk about a Marvin Gaye Marvin Gaye biopic. I hope that can that can get off the ground. But uh, and I and, and Straight Outta Compton was fantastic as well. But this one, I, I felt like, as we said, it may not have been that good, but there wasn't a lot of these going out in 1993, right? I think I read at the time like a lot of the reviews that I was reading of this movie, the only musical biopics they kept referencing were the doors, which had come out like two, three years earlier mm-hmm. or the buddy Holly story, which came out mm-hmm. 15 years earlier. You know, like La Bamba was in 87, right? Yeah. 86, 87, 87. Yeah. So, Coalliner's daughter. That's, that's about yeah. all there was, right? Coalliner's uh, daughter, sweet dreams. I mean, they were, yeah. they were spread out a little bit in the eighties. They weren't coming out as fast and furious like they are now. Yeah. And the, the style of music too is different through all of those. Whereas, you know, like you said, Ray and, and and Walk the Line kind of intersect at some points in the musical styles. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I just wonder, you know, is it possible to have a successful music career without having a dramatic backstory? Uh, yeah, I know. It's crazy. I mean, that's the one thing I got about this movie is it, it made me kind of want to go seek out more of uh, Tina's music, specifically mm-hmm. the stuff that she did with Ike back in the day because mm-hmm. I didn't really know a whole lot about it, yeah. In order to expedite this matter, my client would like to make an oral motion amending her petition for divorce, revoking any financial claims. I want you to be very sure about this. It means you're going to walk out of here with absolutely nothing. Except my name. I'll give up all that other stuff, but only if I get to keep my name. I work too hard for it. You're right. The name is mine. The name got my daddy's blood on it. Now, she want to go. She, 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 she can go wherever she want to go, but the name belongs sure. to me. Mr. Turner. No, no, no. Look here now. Hey, hey, hey. Get your hand off me, man. Now, look. Mr. Turner. She want to go. She can go. Sir? That's fine. She can go. But the yeah. name stays home. The name stays home. As Mrs. Turner has decided to drop all claims, I hereby grant her a divorce on the grounds of irreconcilable differences. Mr. Turner will retain all publishing rights, royalties, all real property, clothing, jewelry, and all other assets. Mrs. Turner will retain the use of her stage. Okay, as we'd like to do on the show, we will look at a couple of other pictures that Disney released around the same time that had very similar themes. We're looking at two on this episode, both released by Hollywood Pictures. The first one was released on March 5th of 1993, and it's called Swing Kids. From Hollywood Pictures. Where's the party tonight? Bismarck. They grew up together. They're really kicking it. They were best friends. Perfect! Until they were forced to choose. Your loyalty is to the Fuhrer above all else. Between surrendering their freedom. We didn't want to join, we had to. He had to. What's your excuse? I'm his friend. And holding on to their friendship. Ah, Come on, Peter! Give me your hand! 
you follow my lead like always, we'll get through this. Swing Kids. Rated PG-13. Starts Friday, March 5th. Okay, Mike. Um, did, had you watched the trailer for this before watching Swing Kids? Before watching Swing Kids? I think I did, because that, that's why I had a very tough time trying to figure out which touchstone picture to to link this with on our show. And I wound up picking what's left got to do with it. But yeah. Okay. Cause I had not, all I knew was it was a movie about kids that like swing. And after watching this movie, had I watched the trailer, I would have understood this much better. But as I was watching the movie unfold this, I, I think I told you a few years ago, I went to a stage production of cabaret, which I've also not seen the movie of and only knew that it was about a German nightclub. And, um, if you're not familiar with Cabaret, uh, go in blind. But, you know, I didn't associate 1930s German nightclub with what was going on in Germany in the 1930s. So very mm. shocking uh, end to Cabaret and very shocking uh, plot line of Swing Kids. Uh, this was, uh, you know, and I think I, I think I liked it better not knowing what to expect. Yeah, I didn't want to know too much about it either. I, I knew the general premise that the, the, the trailer looked interesting. And this is one of the ones I was actually looking forward to seeing, kind of like Newsies, which also stars uh, Christian Bale. It's like, is it, it they're much maligned and I wanted mm. to give them a chance. Yeah. And so this film, I, I, I will mention a little bit of backstory. It was a feature film debut for director Thomas Carter. He had a very lengthy TV career. He directed several films after this as well, uh, did quite well for himself. And in the screenwriter, it was actually his only film credit. Uh, his name is Jonathan Mark Feldman. Now, to try to give the the elevator pitch for this movie, it's kind of hard. So basically, I will just say that it's a group of teenagers who are falling in love with this swing music scene in the, Germany in the late 1930s. And they are faced with the prospect of having to join the Hitler youth as the Nazis rise in their in their country. And so you see, I did not see, I thought it was going to be like, everyone was going to be resisting, but then it mm. turns out, oh, maybe not. Maybe they realize that this is what Germany's supposed to be, right? And they get sucked into what Hitler was saying. And so it, it's really powerful in that regard. Like, you don't know, because you, you, you got to understand, I like it's so easy to be like, oh, Germany was terrible. But you're like, I'm sure there was a lot of people back then that, that were just like, what's going on in our mm. country? This can't be good. And I'm sure there might be the, maybe there was somebody on the fence that could have been swayed, like mm. in this movie. We get a lot of people returning to Disney for this film. We get Barbara Hershey, uh, who did a couple of Touchstone movies, Ten Men and Beaches. She plays the mother of our main character, played by Robert Sean Leonard, who turned in a Ronnie Award-winning <laughs> performance in Dead Poets Society. And, of course, as I mentioned, Christian Bale was in Newsies. Um, again, I'm glad that you saw it without having to know much too much about yeah. it. But it's this is this is where I'm, I'm a little disappointed that this show is not called Out of Hollywood mm -hmm. because I feel like Swing Kids is a movie kind of like Serafina, which we discussed before. Yeah. Like, I wish we could have had a lengthy time to talk about that movie as well. I will say, you know, Swing Kids is streaming on Hoopla. You know, if you especially if you like swing music and you like oh, yeah. really good acting performances, you know, I mean, Kenneth Branagh is completely uncredited. I mm -hmm. read he didn't want to he didn't want his name to appear above any of the, the young actors because they were the stars. You know, you get Frank Wally. It's I. I just I wound up really, really enjoying it more than I thought I would. Yeah, and that's why I want to bring up Roger Ebert's review real quick because oh yeah, I I think he is looking at this wrongly because he gave it a one star, and just to t take a paragraph from his review, he says Nero, who fiddled while Rome burned, would have been the original swing kid. 
One of the elements of this film is that the kids don't seem very political. The screenplay is so murky, indeed, that I was never sure whether the kids hated the Hitler Youth lads because they were Nazis or simply because they didn't swing. At a time when civilization was crashing down around their ears and Hitler was planning the Holocaust, it doesn't make them particularly noble that they'd rather listen to big bands than enlist in the military. And I, th- to me, I think this kind of is an interesting look at 1930s because yes in hindsight we can look back and see what hitler did what the nazis did but if you were there in that moment would you have had a uh concern or would you have just been like oh no this is my life yeah i don't want to be part of the hitler youth but you know that's i'm not political i'm not into that so yeah um Mm -hmm. and and i mean the the relationship between robert sean leonard and christian bale it's I I was enthralled with this movie from start to finish, and I I think uh, Ebert needed to go back and rewatch it. And I, this will be my you know if we had a recommendation for the show, this would be my uh, recommendation to go out and watch yeah. this movie because I think it was uh, probably mismarketed or just uh, the fact that swing music really wasn't popular when this came out. Had this come out five years later when we got the swing revival, maybe it would have oh, done yeah. better. But uh, yeah, this mm-hmm. is this. I, We've talked about it before on the show that this is the reason why we do the show is to find these movies that we haven't seen that we're not that familiar with. And I, you know, I would definitely watch Swing Kids again. And what I I was fascinated by was it was a real thing. Yeah. I mean, this this really happened. There were a group of kids who were really into the the swing and they didn't want to get sucked into the Hitler youth. And what's funny is with Ebert and I did read this made Ebert's like most hated list of, of all time. And I give him credit because he's going to lead right into my thematic connection <laughs> with what's love got to do with it. And that is, this is characters using music as an escape for the horrors of what's going on around them. You know, the swing kids are trying to take their mind off of the Nazi regime because what are they going to do? These kids are in high school. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like, are they going to, are they going to become revolutionaries or something? No, they're trying to just, to, they, they, they probably like, like many people in Germany at the time probably didn't think it was going to escalate to that point. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and so they probably figured, let's, let's just find our own little niche and we're going to really get into this music. And like anybody who's in high school, you want to find people around you who are into the same stuff and just forget about everything else and just hang out with your friends. And so I can't fault them for that. And at the same time, and what's I've got to do with it, you know, Tina uses the music to kind of keep Ike at bay. Right. You can ask yourself, have Roger Ebert asking why didn't the swing kids, you know, stand up to Nazism? Well, why didn't Tina leave Ike back in 1962? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, like you, you there's a reason for it. And there's a reason that like because, like I said, the music and Swing Kids is really powerful. You see Frank Wally's character who's like really into it. He's a musician. He wants to learn all this stuff, you know, and Tina wants to just be the best possible performer that she can be. And Ike is what gave her the confidence to do that. And then obviously, you know, she whether she stays with him because it's going to she still needs his mentorship or whatnot. But it, it like I said, I'm, I'm guessing when she's on stage, you know, Ike's not slapping her around when they're on stage. Mm-hmm. And so when they're touring, it's just, it's unfortunately, it's those scenes when they're together alone in a room or something, but it's like, I wonder if she's using the musical performances as a moment of relief from what's going on in her personal life. Very good thematic connection. Yeah. I'm proud of that one. <laughs> unfortunately, we got one, we got one other Hollywood picture to talk about. And I can tell you, we will not be reviewing it. We're glow- glowingly, 
the way that we did with Swing Kids. It was released on June 4th of 1993, and it's called Guilty as Sin. From Hollywood Pictures. Hasn't anyone ever said no to you before? My wife said no, just before I threw her out the window. When it comes to women. It's my talent, getting women to do what I want them to do. A man this charming. I want you to defend me. You're going to prove me innocent, and then there will be millions. Could get away with murder. <laughs> this boy loves to take chances. Rebecca De Mornay. She can't take me, Dad. Don Johnson. Like that. Guilty as sin. Rated R. Now, this is the legendary director, Sidney Lumet, returning to Hollywood Pictures. This was his first film after 1992's A Stranger Among Us. Ah, I missed that <laughs> one. I made, I made Chad watch that one for us. Uh, as we mentioned on that episode, I guess, he's famous for movies like Network, 12 Angry Men as well. Uh, the writer of this film was Larry Cohen. He had directed several exploitation films in the 70s. And then in the 1980s, he wrote the Maniac Cop movies have not seen any of those chad that's seems like it's right in our wheelhouse but i missed them all did you see the maniac cop I, I know the vhs covers and uh, i think i've seen the star of maniac cop at some at some conventions but no yes. i have not i have not seen those films I, I will give you the elevator pitch on this one because to me i feel like and i don't know if we talked about it on this show or not but i definitely talk about it with my friends sometimes i feel like they're you ever watch a movie where it feels like it was written in a boardroom like somebody had an idea you know, there was a there was a diehard movie set in Russia, and I'm sure someone in a boardroom one time said "Yippee Kaye, Mother Russia," and they wrote a movie around it. That was the tagline of that movie. Um, this movie is basically Don Johnson is accused of killing his wife, and Rebecca De Mornay is his, is his defense attorney, and so they get engaged in this like game of cat and mouse. And I, I keep thinking about in the late '90s, there was a movie that came out when I was in college called Double Jeopardy mm-hmm. with T- Tommy Lee Jones and Ashley Judd. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see that one? I saw that in the theater, yes. Yeah, me, I did too. And I think, if memory, memory serves, it's something about Ashley Judd is incorrect, is, is wrongly imprisoned for killing her husband. And then when she gets out, she finds out that he's still alive. And so the idea is, well, I can't go to jail again for killing him. <laughs> so Tommy Lee Jones is trying to stop her from going back to kill her real husband. <laughs> and so basically, guilty as sin is the idea of guy gets accused of killing his wife. Defense attorney takes the case enters the plea of not guilty, and then as soon as they go through that process, then he comes out and says, oh, no, I actually did it. But you can't tell on me because that's attorney-client privilege. Again, it, it's, it sounds like it was just somebody in the boardroom going, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be interesting if, the, if an attorney-client privilege presented you from, from uh, giving up on your client? And so it just, oh, God, it was so bizarre. <laughs> um, for the connections, we always like to mention how like these people come back to Disney. I guess they have a good relationship with Katzenberg and, and whatnot. You know, this is Don Johnson's third consecutive Disney film. He had done Paradise for Touchstone in 1991. He'd done Born Yesterday earlier in 1993 for Diminishing Hollywood Pictures. Returns. Diminishing Returns. Oh, man. Well, but Rebecca de Mornay was coming off of The Hand That Rocks the Cradle in 1992. Mm-hmm. And we get a great, we do get a good supporting performance from Jack Warden. He was in Passed Away, the really, really good Hollywood picture that I love. He's also in 12 Angry Men, you know, 35 years earlier. And we even get Louis Guzman. If there's any, <laughs> if there's any community fans out there, ah, he's so good. But, yeah, like you said, Chad, I just could not get past the premise. It's utterly ridiculous. It's not engaging at all. You know, there's a scene where, where she's trying to – where Rebecca Dorney trying to get off the case. Mm-hmm. And the judge says, nope, you, you already entered the plea. you got to defend him. And we don't, don't make the taxpayers have to pay for this again. And I'm like, 
I, now, Chad, I'm not a legal expert, but that seems like a, a, a movie premise more than reality. I, I'm prepared to be wrong. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I just watched the movie Nuts with Richard Dreyfuss and uh, Barbara Streisand. And in that movie, Dreyfuss is assigned um, to Barbara Streisand's character. But I think he's more of a public defender. So I don't know if you can make a, you know, a high priced attorney take a case. But yeah, mm. I, I this whole movie just seemed like a fever dream someone had one weekend and wrote it up and someone didn't get the joke that it wasn't meant to be a real script. Yeah. And Don Johnson reminded me so much of Bill Murray's Bob character from <laughs> what about Bob? Where it was like, every time he was on scene, he just kept following her around. He kept being annoying. And it was just like, I, I could, I could take as much Don Johnson as I could Bill Murray in, in that film as well. And I think we talked about it a little bit off the air and I was going to see if you wanted to elaborate, but um, Hollywood pictures, as I mentioned, they seem to dwell on these type of thrillers. You get movies like The Hand of Rocks the Cradle, Consenting Adults. You know, they have what I like to call forced adult themes, where we mentioned how Touchstone, Hollywood Pictures is kind of like the R-rated version of Touchstone, you know, with a little bit darker type material. Like, but it's even like, it's just, it's supposed to be like so adult. Like the very first scene, you see Rebecca De Mornay and she's in court. And then when she leaves, she goes to see her boyfriend and then she immediately just takes her clothes off mm. and starts, and basically starts, performing sexual congress on him in his office. Mm. And we're like, I'm sorry, is this is this adding to the plot? Or is this just <laughs> is this just Hollywood pictures showing, you know, Kevin Spacey's naked wife and mm. consenting adults or so you know, it's like it's just like they they really want to be edgy for the sake of being edgy. And I, I don't I don't know. It was a little bit weird when you're when the whole time you're watching and you're like, man, this is this is this isn't this it wouldn't have made the cut for touchstone. This mm. deserves to be a Hollywood picture. Uh, I don't even think this should have made the cut for a canon film, which Mm-hmm. And 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 I just like I said I had watched this months ago so I didn't go back and rewatch it before we recorded this podcast but the ending of this film is up there with was it shattered was that the, deceived deceived uh, I keep getting them confused um yeah the Goldie Hawn yes Goldie Hawn movie deceived so if you're going to have a bad movie night with friends and you want a double feature put on deceived and guilty as sin. At least the seeds kind of kept you interested. It was just like, oh, did he did he kill this person? You know, it was it was more. Whereas at least like with Guilty as Sin, it was sort of like it was a Columbo episode. You know, he did it. Yeah. And so you're just going to figure out, OK, what's going to happen out of this? And so Rebecca De Mornay is like trying to frame him. And then it's just, oh, God, it got silly. <laughs> and then what killed me, we talked about a little bit earlier. Stephen Lang is in this movie again for people from our generation. Yeah, he did stuff in the 80s. But as we got older. I will always remember him as that badass from Avatar, <laughs> who's one of the great movie villains. And so to see him in this movie, he's got a curly hair and a mustache, and he gets beaten to a pulp by Don Johnson later in the film. And I'm thinking, all the time I'm watching that scene, I'm like, oh, no, Stephen Lang would end <laughs> Don Johnson. You know what I mean? Like, that, I, you know what he messes with? Band of the Hand, Avatar, Stephen Lang. And so I'm like, I can't believe they left him so defenseless in this in this movie it was just uh okay yeah. anyway uh but the thematic connection is pretty simple this is charming and manipulative men who think they can get away with anything you know don johnson's character of david you know he has money and influence and that kind of gets him some respect whereas like ike turner has power and name recognition because of all of his musical success and that gets him his respect and so you're, it's, it's interesting to see that the dichotomy between these two smooth talkers and you can see how, like, I don't know, I felt Ike was a little bit more persuasive 
And it was more believable that people could be drawn to him, maybe because of his music. Maybe music means music and art might mean something more than just money because money could have come from anywhere. Whereas there's scenes in Guilty as Sin where it's like women are just doing whatever they can for Don Johnson. And I don't know, Chad, I was watching. I'm like, that seems like they're why? Why, why would just is he that handsome? Is he that does he come off as that rich? Are these women that shallow that they'll just totally help him corroborate murders because, oh, well, it's Don Johnson. And he's good looking. Yes, yes, and if he still has the pet alligator or crocodile, then definitely yes. Okay, so watch Swing Kids. Don't watch Guilty <laughs> as Sin. All right, lastly, let's look at the uh, the box office of these three films. Um, not the best news that you could possibly have. Uh, we'll start with What's Love Got to Do With It. It was released on June the 9th. It was only limited to 58 screens, and yet it still finished 12th at the box office with one2 million dollars the only other film that opened was first place the juggernaut that is jurassic park interestingly enough what's love got to do with it had a better per screen average than jurassic park that weekend so it's interesting touchstone kind of had a little bit of a hit on their hands but yet 58 screens um on the charts at the same time from disney would have been we mentioned guilty as sin guilty as sin was in third place life with mikey was in seventh place and super mario brothers we'll get to that eventually that was in 10th place. Uh, and its second week, What's Love Got to Do With It expands to 428 screens, and it finishes fourth with $3.6 million. Uh, the films that opened that weekend would have been Last Action Hero, the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, and a movie called What's Upon a Forest, which I think is a kid's animated movie. I do not remember that. I think it came and went within a week or two. Um, by its third week, now it's gaining a little bit of steam. What's Love Got to Do With It goes to 1,100 screens, but it drops to fifth, and it only makes $5.5 million. That weekend, you get movies like Sleepless in Seattle and Dennis the Menace, which both finish in the top three. Uh, July 4th weekend rolls around. What's Love Got to Do With It is now falling. It's dropped to eighth place. Still, the whole time, very strong per-screen average. You get more star power in the box office with movies like The Firm with Tom Cruise. I did see that Disney re-released Snow White, and it made $9 million and finished fifth place on the July 4th box office. Um, the movie What's Love Got to Do With It does hover around 10th place for a few more weeks, finally drops off the charts. After about two months, it grosses $39 million in its theatrical run, but the budget was $19 million. So you always say, what do we say, two and a half times the budget? It, it seems pretty good. So this was basically right at twice the budget. Um, I don't know, Chad. I feel like there was nothing really like this movie in June of 1993. Mm. You know, it's the summertime, right? But then you've got you have Spielberg. You have Arnold Schwarzenegger. You have yeah. Sylvester Stallone. You got kids' movies like Dennis the Menace and Rookie of the Year. You know, there's not a whole lot for adults. I think I looked at this box office at the same time would have been, you know, the Ivan Reitman comedy Dave, Indecent Proposal. I mean, Guilty of Sin, if you want to call that movies for adults. Also, Made in America, the Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg, Ted Danson film. Uh, I think it performed well in a good mm. spot, but. I think it should have been on more screens, but or did you think that they just did it so they can kind of keep the word of mouth going? Uh, probably, you know, without having Angela Bassett wouldn't have been a huge name at the time. Lawrence Fishburne, you know, I, I, I think he's more well-known now, obviously, obviously um, I'm surprised this movie didn't come out later in the year and be more of an Oscar bait film or a golden globe sure. film. I, I think that would have helped release this in the fall, but you know, I also don't know, was Tina Turner still touring at this time? Did they want to get it out if she was on a summer tour and they wanted kind of a tie in? Um, That's true. She, came, she, 
she kicked off a tour right when the movie opened. I okay. did see that. But I think she kicked off the tour because of the movie. It wasn't mm. like they dropped the movie because of it. But that makes yeah. sense. You're right. Summer tours make more money, I would imagine. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Well, look at Swing Kids. That was released on March the 5th. Only 500 screens. And it finished 10th place with $2 million. The other films that opened against it were Mad Dog and Glory. Which I think that's the Robert De Niro, Bill Murray, Uma Thurman. Thurman. Yeah. Um, that finished fifth place. Amos and Andrew, the Samuel Jackson film with Cage. Nicolas Cage, right? That finished in sixth. And then we get the sequel, Best of the Best Part Two, which finished seventh place. Uh, Swing Kids did have a better screen average than any of the uh, films that opened that weekend. Uh, the other Disney films that were on the charts at the time, this is March 5th. Uh, Homeward Bound was fourth place. Aladdin was ninth place. Uh, and the number one film at the box office that week was Falling Down with Michael Douglas. Saw that in the theater, actually, in my tell. The older I get, um, the more I relate to Michael Douglas. Week... Yeah, no kidding. I know. Especially living, living in Los Angeles, yeah. too. I kind of want to rewatch it and see if it, see if it uh, rings true. In uh, its second week, it's and its final week in the box office charts, Swing Kids falls all the way to 13th place. It only grosses $5.6 million during its two-week run, uh, but the budget was $12 million. So, um, I don't know. From an analysis standpoint, I mean, you know, the film probably wasn't released to be a box office hit. You know, mm-hmm. March is a really crowded marketplace. You got last year's Oscar nominees were still in the charts. Movies like Unforgiven, Scent of a Woman, Few Good Men, The Crying Game. And then you had new movies that were like for everyone. Movies like Falling Down. Also, Groundhog Day is still around. Uh, what I thought was interesting is during the two weeks that Swing Kids, Swing Kids was in theaters, there were six films that were dropped, that were released on one of those two weekends. And none of those films made more than $20 million. So it's that weird sort of, it's like, I don't know, it's, it's not summer. You've missed Valentine's Day, right? Mm-hmm. The Oscar movies are still in theaters. And you've got, like I said, you've got stuff like Groundhog Day. Yeah, so I, I don't know, like you, like you mentioned, it's a shame that it's, more people didn't see this one, I guess. Yeah, well, I think it's a hard sell, you know. Again, without having yeah. star power and, you know, uh, Nazi dancing film, yeah. Who, who's your target audience there? But. I mean, yeah, the people that like Sound of Music probably wouldn't yeah. have uh, <laughs> rushed out to see this one. Uh, finally, we have Guilty as Sin, which was released on June the 4th. It finished third place in its opening weekend with $5.7 million. The other film that opened was a Disney film, Life with Mikey. We talked about it like last week that for this protection. On. It finished in seventh place. The number one film at the box office was Cliffhanger. Interestingly enough, uh, I don't know about why did Disney put two movies out <laughs> in the same day? Like, I feel like we've seen it before with a, with a touch shown in a Hollywood picture, but it seems, I mean, I guess they were hoping like with Mikey might've appealed to the kids and guilty as sin to the adults, that counter programming that we always mm-hmm. discuss. Uh, guilty as sin drops off the box office charts after about a month. It basically goes third place, fourth place, sixth place, 11 or eighth place. So it still manages to stay in the top 10, which I'm surprised if it's still in the top 10, why is it not on the charts anymore? Um, it grosses $22.9 million in its entire theatrical run. The budget was $12 million, so not quite profitable. Um, the only other suspense thriller in theaters at the time was Sliver. And that, that was with Sharon Stone. I think that was one of her first, I think it was her first movie post-Basic Instinct. Yeah, and it was and that, by Joe Esterhaus, so had that connection with it. So I'm sure that got a lot of promotion at the time. Yeah. It had come out two weeks earlier, so I, you know, I'm surprised that... Maybe it's just because the word, the word, probably no word of mouth for Guilty as Sin for all those poor souls that paid money to see it in the theater. I mean, it had a decent per screen average. You know, it was kind of an alternative to the summer blockbuster, the adult 
suspense thriller. But again, maybe we're underestimating what kind of a box office draw Don Johnson was at that time. Because I like him. He's a good actor. Mm. We, we, we love Harley Davidson, the Marlboro Man. He's going to turn up in Tin Cup in a few years. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't know if he's still riding the Miami Vice residual wave, I guess. I don't know. All right. Well, uh, from an awards consideration standpoint, as we mentioned, uh, you know, What's Love Got to Do With It's going to get a lot of award uh, consideration for the two leads. Both Angela Bassett and Lawrence Fishburne get Oscar nominations for Best Actor and Actress. Angela Bassett loses to Holly Hunter in The Piano. Lawrence Fishburne loses to Tom Hanks in Philadelphia. I have not seen either of those films. I'm, I know everyone raised about Tom Hanks in Philadelphia, but... Ah, man, I would defy him to be as good as Lawrence Fishburne was and what's something that to do with it. Uh, Angela Bassett wins the Golden Globe for Best Actress, Musical, or Comedy. I hate these because this movie's not a musical. It is a drama that has some songs in it. And so I think they've just figured she had a better chance of winning an award, right? And yet, how in the world Lawrence Fishburne does not get nominated for Best Actor in a musical, if you want to call this a musical? I, I don't get it. Uh, Angela Bassett is also nominated for the MTV Movie Award for Best Female Performance. She loses to a woman who she beat out for the role of Tina Turner, and that is Janet Jackson in Poetic Justice. Uh, They both get a handful, uh, Bassett and Fishburne both get a handful of nominations from the various film critics associations. But surprisingly, Angela Bassett gets more. I don't know. Maybe it's just not a lot of strong female performances that year. We talk about that a lot on on Touchdown. It's unfortunate. Or I'm... Maybe they didn't want to uh, reward Ike Turner, you know, even though you're not rewarding Ike, you're rewarding Lawrence Fishburne. Maybe just the stigma mm-hmm. of Ike kept people from voting for him. Yeah, we talked about this on, show, on, on this show before, I'm sure. Actors love playing villains, mm-hmm. right? And those are the ones you really much more, you really sink your teeth into that much more meatier role. Yeah. Uh, I was surprised Swing Kids actually did get an award nomination. It's for that award we love talking about on Out of Touchstone, the Young Artist Award. It gets nominated for the Outstanding Youth Ensemble in a Motion Picture, and it loses to The Sandlot. You know, I got no problem with that, Chad. Ah, you're, you're killing me, Adolf. So. <laughs> uh, that's what I'm calling this episode. You're killing me, Adolf. All right, let's recap. Let's, let's, I'm, we're done. I'm done talking about these movies. Uh, we always like to talk about would, they, would the 50 Disney ideal that Jeffrey Katzenberg had for these singles and doubles I don't know about you, Chad. I think absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. we have an inspiring biopic about a huge music star. We get a small musical drama with some talented teenage actors. And then as bad as Guilty as Sin was, it's still a star vehicle with some Disney returnees. You know, we, we get to carry on the relationships with Rebecca De Mornay and Don Johnson. We also bring Christian Bale, Robert Sean Leonard back to the Disney fold. And we get a chance to, to break Angela Bassett and Lawrence Fishburne and turn them into huge stars. So I would say all three, say what you will about Guilty as Sin, but all three are, it's good work on Disney's part. Yeah, I agree with you. I think if you, you know, if I was sitting in that boardroom and the pitch came in, I, I you know, maybe try to get the Swing Kids budget down a little bit. But other than that, yeah, I think, you know, and, and you hope more probably for Swing Kids to hit the video market and be a bigger hit there. And I don't know if it ever, if it did find an audience in video, but, um, yeah, I, I definitely think this is, you know, a, a picture-perfect slate of films to encapsulate the singles and doubles mantra. Yeah, go see these movies. But how do you, if you want to see them, how do you watch them? Well, as Chad mentioned, What's Love Got to Do With It was streaming for free on IMDb TV with commercials. I got the DVD from the library just to play it safe. 
Uh, and then both Swing Kids and Guilty as Sin are streaming for free on Hoopla, the excellent streaming service through the public library system. Again, go see Swing Kids. Yeah. Um, what are we going to talk about in our next episode? Well, it's basically a mishmash of comedies about bumbling criminals. I think I think the thematic connections are going to be kind of strong on this movie. Again, this is Out of Touchdown. My name is Mike DeKalb. You can find me on Twitter at Mike DeKalb. I also run the Out of Touchdown Twitter account, which is at Out of Touchdown. My co-host Chad Smart is on Twitter as well, at Chad Smart. He's the proprietor of the Positive Cynicism Podcasting Network, the hashtag PCPN. Chad, we already know that everyone should see Swing Kids and everyone should watch Angela Bassett, and especially Lawrence Fishburne, do some acting. But what would you like to tell our listeners as we say goodnight? Uh, instead of watching Guilty of Sin, just pop in a blank VHS tape and watch that. Now, uh, I'm going to say just enjoy this time on Earth that we have. Um, I, that's all I'm going to say. Just go out and be nice to someone. Do a little act of gratitude. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to try. I'm going to stop it right there because I don't want to get too hippy dippy uh but yeah just go out and do you know as i like to say on my shows do something positive uh, that's a nice that's a nice message chad and in the words of tina turner i'll just say you're simply the best this is out of touchstone mm-hmm. and we're out of time out of touchstone is a honey nerds production For more information, visit outoftouchstone.com. Like and subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool, thank you, good night.